So good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Tonight we will continue with the discussion of the Bhagavat Sandarbha. We say Bhagavat, we're referring to a personal conception of the Absolute, of the Supreme. There are different conceptions, different ways, as we have heard, of looking at transcendence. Those ways are delineated in one very nice verse, sloka, coming from the Srimad Bhagavatam. Vedanti tat tat vavidas tat vamyaj janam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti sabjate. And this verse from the Bhagavatam is the core verse used by Jiva Goswami for his presentation of the Sandarbhas. So I want to speak to begin with preliminarily a little bit about this verse. Vedanti tat tat vavidas tatvamyaj janam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti sabjate verse is basically saying that learned transcendentalists, people that are in the know spiritually, approach the supreme truth, the absolute, the Godhead, variously according to their angles of vision. But the absolute is absolute, no matter how it or him is approached. So, the absolute has characteristics. These transcendentalists approaching the absolute refer to it as non-dual. It doesn't have any duality. And they say this so that we can get a proper conception of what what transcendence means in relationship to the world we live in. So, in this world, that's all we experience is duality. Wherever we go, there's a yin and there's a yang, there's a hot, there's a cold, there's a male, there's a female. So everything here speaks of duality, and it's our primary experience. And we want to, we're pleasure-seeking entities, and we want to eliminate that which is not pleasurable, and embrace that which is which is pleasurable for us. That's what these spiritual sages are referring to. From the viewpoint of the Absolute, these dualities do not exist. The dualities that we're experiencing do not exist on the pure spiritual platform. 
So no matter what angle of vision you have regarding spirituality, that's, that's the beginning point. That you have to see it as different from what we're experiencing in our everyday lives. Difference in that in that stage of pure consciousness there is not duality. The verse goes on to say according to your angle of vision mode of worship really. I mean if you look at worshiping it's a way of approaching transcendence or spirituality you could you can uh, approach from a neutral viewpoint you can approach from a a submissive viewpoint and you can approach from a loving viewpoint the loving viewpoint includes the other viewpoints. So if you're loving, well, there's already submission in love. Not the submission of our world of duality, because in the world of duality, we're forced to submit. If the body catches a cold, we don't have a choice in the matter. We're forced to submit to the circumstance. If we go to work someday and the employer says, you're out of here, we're for forced to submit. That's different than submitting under the, under the more broader context of love. If you're married, you're submitting. The wife is submitting to the husband, the husband is submitting to the wife, and that's a marriage. It's a two-way street. Don't let anybody tell you it's anything different. It goes both ways. There are certain cultures where they try to get a, around that, but it doesn't work well. In the Vedic culture, we find that relationship between the male and the female. If we read deeply our main scripture, the Srimad Bhagavatam, it seems that as far as knowledge and understanding and appreciation of transcendence of spirituality, the men don't seem to have any advantage. There's no distinction. The women in, the, in that Vedic tradition and the men are equally enlightened. The prayers of Queen Kunti, of Devahuti, of Yasoda, are equally as appreciable and equally as imbued with pure devotion as those of Prahlad or Gajendra or Akrora. I'm sorry for all the names it's, it's built in. But anyway, these are all spiritual personalities that, that are brought to us by the Bhagavatam. Just like you go to, you know, this is brought to you by 
some. So, all of all of our spiritual in our spiritual tradition, we have lots of spiritual knowledge, and it's brought to us by the Bhagavatam. So this verse, back to it. Different angles of vision when we look to transcendence. Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Sanjate. As I touched upon last class, Brahman means a general understanding that spiritual consciousness is is devoid of material characteristics. Otherwise, what would make it spiritual? So spiritual means devoid of material characteristics. And for some transcendentalists, that's enough. Let me get free of the dualities of material existence. That in and of itself, that's nirvana. That, that's, that's enough joyfulness for me to end the dualities that are forced upon me in material life. So, we call those people Brahmavadis. They want, they're interested in this concept, and it's fully transcendental. But there's full, there's more full, more, more full and there's absolutely full. So, there's another class of transcendentalists, Paramatmas, Paramatmeti, Brahmeti, Paramatmeti. They go a step further. They, they want, of course, to have the topmost pleasure, as we're all seeking. And like the Brahmavadis, they realize that the pleasures of this world are fleeting. They come and go. It's not that they don't exist. It's not that they're not pleasurable. But they're temporary, and I'm eternal. So when I meet the love of my life, and my life ends, that's a problem. It's nice. We can have a nice loving relationship in this world, and have our spouse, and raise nice children. But... It ends. I don't end. I'm spirit soul. So it's a problem. So we can go to the Brahman platform and say, let me eliminate the pluses and the minuses of material existence. The Paramatma, Paramatmati, they, they see, they, their angle of vision is a little different. They see that there is, it's nice to end the pluses and the minuses, but there's, it's also nice to recognize that there is a spiritual current running through everything which has a conscious interaction with the world around us. They have, they have an appreciation for the energies of the environment. The, they have an appreciation for the fact that there is some underlying conscious force which interacts with us 
on the material plane. Paramatma. So they see running through the current of nature, there is a consciousness that has a great influence on our existence. They, the, the overriding theistic approach is called Paramatmeti, and it's basically seeing that the energy of the Supreme runs through everything in a conscious and attentive way. Sometimes the conscious and attentive way is good for us, and sometimes the instructive end of that conscious interface is, well, it's instructive. We call that awareness, awareness of the environment and our interaction with it. That higher consciousness being Paramatma is the regulating factor. How do we interface with that factor? For the most part, we call it karma. Some of it's good. If I'm good, what comes to me is good. And when I'm bad, what comes to me is bad. And that karma is, is always there. And it answers a lot of the questions of life, the fact that Paramatma is interfacing with us, so that we can see that the circumstance that I'm in now is different from the circumstance of other living entities. I'm in a human body. I'm in a good society. I'm in an animal body. I'm in a suffering society. So many changes. So the current of samsara, of repeated birth and death, is driving, driven by this karmic overriding conscious energy of the world around us, of nature. So it's, it's an acknowledgement of the fact that God is, his, his, his hand is in everything and he's guiding us on this plane. That's Paramatma Consciousness. There's another consciousness where an understanding of the Lord can be gained where we can understand that that personality that is the overriding energy in everything is the conscious manifestation of that energy in nature and in our lives and that energy can have a life of its own, independent of the energy that comes from the, the source of all energy, Brahman, independent of that energy that regulates us in life, Paramatma, 
fulfilling all our desires, keeping things in check, giving us a slap on the wrist when you do the wrong thing, throwing back to us any greed, hatred, animosity that we have towards others. Paramatma's there. Oh, well, no. Throwing back any good, loving, caring, beneficial energy that we put out in the world. These particular teachings here are centered around that other concept of the Supreme where he's seen as both Brahman and Paramatma and giving us some insight into he does have a life of his own and it is unique and it is in a, on a plane of consciousness which is ever inviting to us to enjoy strictly a spiritual existence. So we see that as an all-encompassing solution, Bhagavan. So Bhagavat Sandarbha is teaching us about Bhagavan. So tonight's discussion is centered around characteristics of Bhagavan that the author, Jiva Goswami, is drawing from the great literatures of sage, sages and saints who have experienced. He begins the whole, the whole book of the Sandarbhas and the Tattva Sandarbha by saying, we're going to base this book on spiritual revelation, specifically the revelation of the author of the book, Srila Vyasudeva, and of a speaker of the book, his son, Sukadev. So Vyasudeva and Sukadev Goswami, their revelations, what they the spiritual energy, the spiritual force, the spiritual enlightenment that came to them is the basis of the Bhagavatam and is the support, supporting uh, scripture for Jiva Goswami's presentation of the Sandarvas. So as evidence for every spiritual truth regarding the Supreme Godhead in a personal form that encompasses Brahman, Paramatma, but also is spiritual on a much higher plane because everything that we can have as far as eternity, knowledge, and bliss, God has in spades. We can have a little enjoyment, even if we come to the highest plane of, of self-introspection and enter into samadhi, the amount of ananda that we can have there is considered infinitesimal practically. In fact, some one sage puts it this way. He says, 
the pleasure that you can have in knowing your your inner self, detaching from the world around you, going into meditation, contemplating your true essence, the pleasure you can have there of pulling away from everything that's a distraction and just just being the essence, the sara essence of your self, that pleasure is can be compared to what's contained, the water that's contained in the hoof print of a calf. Compared to the pleasure that you can have, if you have a loving exchange with Bhagavan, with the Supreme Godhead in all of his energies. So, there's a difference. It doesn't, it doesn't, it puts things in a perspective. If you could know the inner life of the Supreme, it so much exceeds our own personal inner life. He has a life of his own. And he's willing to share it with us. That's Bhagavan. So tonight we're going to discuss one aspect. We've been talking about the Supreme in the form of Bhagavan. And we've been talking about the fact that everything in relation to him is transcendental. It's spiritual. It's not of this world and we, in order to understand him, we need to see it in that perspective. So, we're at a section now where even his name or that nomenclature that we attribute to him has to be seen as fully spiritual. So spiritual that all of the potencies, the energies, the abilities, the, the cognitions, the all-pervasiveness of God that we can conceive of, all those energies are included also just in his name. That's what spiritual, that's what spiritual energy means. No limitations. So, his, meaning Bhagavan, God, the Supreme, his name, form, actions, and attributes are transcendental, not of this world. After establishing that the birth and actions of Bhagavan are transcendental and distinct from those of mortal beings, Shijiva Goswami verifies that Krishna's name is also spiritual. The Lord is called Anama, nameless because he does not have material names. And then Jiva's going to go on and and he's going to give us some insight to what does this really mean. It seems like a simple thing, but it's not. So let's understand what's in material names and what's in spiritual names. First of all, because his names are themselves Vedic mantras, they're eternal. And the attributes of an eternal substance, according to logic, nyaya, 
the attributes of something of that are, is eternal are themselves eternal. And the attributes of something that are, is temporary are temporary. So thus the Lord's name and other attributes are eternal manifestations of his internal potency. Now this was interesting in working up to this because we were talking about the fact that his pastimes are eternal. They continually exist. If he manifests a form where there is a playfulness in him where he appears to take birth like we do, that birth is eternal. It's always going on. We may only see it in one in one perspective, but it's always happening. It's deep stuff. Everything about God is eternal. His name is also eternal. There's no one who can assign a name to God, to Krishna. Because he existed prior to everyone and prior to the act of naming. So he had a, it's not like somebody said, well, let's call God Krishna. That sounds cool. It means all attractive. No, Krishna's always been Krishna. If we have a name and we have a form, it's because he attributed those things to us. It's not that we can attribute those things to him. As a matter of fact, he is the one who has given names to all objects which are created by him. Sri Krishna is known is as Vedanta Krit. And he spoke the Vedas to Lord Sri Brahma. Sarvashyachahamriti sani visto matasmritir janamapohanam cha vedascha savaram eva vedyo vedanta krid veda vid avischaham. By the force of time, which is also my energy, all the knowledge of the Veda was lost. Therefore, when the sequence of creation took place, I spoke the Vedic knowledge again to Brahma. Because I myself are that religious principle, that underlying guiding energy that's enunciated in the Vedas. So let's talk about names and attributes that are attributed to ourselves in this phenomenal world, this empiric world. The names and classes assigned to people are not part of their essential nature. They can be modified or replaced by new ones without causing any changes of essence. They serve only to assist in empiric dealings. Okay, what does that mean? 
it's okay, I understand, we can assign a name, and when I have a child, I get, I get to choose the name. That wasn't always like that. And we'll go into that, because that sometimes confuses people, because they look at the Vedas, they look at all these narrations, all these stories in the scriptures that the sages and the sages have, have, have given us of people like Maharaj Parikshit. And we look, especially in the Bhagavatam, that book of stories that I'm talking about, that Jiva's using as evidence, and we looked at the different personalities, and it's really far out because their name, if you break it down into what's the underlining meaning of it, it really matches who they are. Take, for example, Parikshit. If we look at this Sanskrit word, Parikshit, it means what? Someone who's inquiring. And the story's there. Well, Parikshit was in the womb of his mother, and his mother was being attacked by mantra. Again, these are things that are not known to us today in this society. Some would call that fantastic. But other, would people, other people would say, yes, mantras have an effect. I've been saying my mantra for a long time, and I'm noticing gradually there is some effect. So it's not that mantras don't have an effect. So in days of yore, it's not hard to accept the fact that mantras could have a very profound effect when they're in the right hands or on the right lips, so to speak. So Parikshit was in the womb of his mother. His mother was being attacked by a mantra that was thrown at her, a weapon, and the weapon was, again, in the scriptures, it's described as pretty far out. It's a personalized nuclear device. That means that these fighters of yore who used mantras, they were great mystics and great yogis. And in order to kill you, they didn't need to kill everyone around you. They could make, with a mantra, a nuclear device that would only burn you up. That's pretty far out, too. So anyway, to make a long story short, somebody was throwing a personalized nuclear device at Parikshit's mother. Parikshit was foretold was going to be a very spiritual king and do much for the benefit of human society. Because of that because of everything that was good about his birth, that was written in the stars about him, when this nuclear device came, the Lord personally entered the womb of his mother and protected him. Even from in the womb, 
this profoundly affected Parikshit. He had a revelation. God's protecting me. It's even said that he saw the Lord from within the womb protecting him. Throughout his life, he tried to find that personality who had protected him. Everywhere he went, he looked for that personality. Therefore, the name is there, Parikshit, Parikshit Maharaj, the great Raj who looked for God everywhere. So you could say, well, his name, if you look to the, to the real meaning of his name, it really corresponds closely with the activities that he took on in life. It's not like, his name was not like Dave. I mean, there's, sure, there's probably thousands of Daves in the world today, but I don't think we can say Dave does what. His name doesn't designate his character. Well, Parikshit, it does. Many people look at the scriptures and they see these names and they say, well, the people just made up these stories because the names are too close to the activities of the personality. It, it has to be a fable. But it's just because they don't know the science. The Vedas are very scientific and there was a time in man, in human society, where when the child took birth, sages looked to the stars and predicted the characteristics of that personality's life. Even when we look to the, to the, to the birth of uh, Jesus Christ in, in uh, Christian theology, the sages looked to the stars and knew somebody's taking birth that's really, really, really special. Let's go seek out that personality and that birth and offer some gift, it would be good for us. It would be good for our spiritual life. So they looked to the stars. They also saw that. So this is not unheard of. It's not just in Vedic society. Then, of course, we could go. And, um, so we need to see that there is a way of correlating material names to personages, but the science has for the most part been lost in human society. So it kind of goes against what's being presented here, but it doesn't. Because at any time, someone could be assigned names, a name, by a sage or a mystic looking to the stars and looking and doing his his uh, astrological chart, but it can give a, lot, a great indication of what you could be in life, but it doesn't take away your independence. You could be, have been designated to be a great person, but then all of a sudden something in life throws your life off the rails. And even though you were a great, a great student of spiritual, uh, spirituality, 
you could see some material thing and all of a sudden you could become like an Ajamil. He was on the right course, but something threw him off track. So going on here, the point being made, the names and classes assigned to people are not part of their essential nature. They can be modified or replaced by new ones without causing any change of essence. They serve only to assist in empiric dealings. So, someone could be named uh, Pandit Siromani, the crown jewels of, of, of pundits, of scholars, of people that know everything. They know deeply, deep thinkers. Um, but he could be a fool. So somebody could give him this name, Pandit Siromani, but he may not ever open a book. Or as we mentioned in the last discussion, somebody would could name their son Padmalochan just out of a of a wish that he would have good sight in the world, although he was born blind. So his name would not be indicative of his characteristics. But these names have no bearing on someone's essential nature. There's no factual relationship between a person's name and his attributes. However, we learn that the names attributed to the Supreme are not like that. They're transcendental. And Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu spoke about this himself. Nam namakari bahuda nijasara shaktish tritarpita niyamita smarane nikala itadrasi Itadrasi Tavakripa Bhagavan Mamapi Durdaiva Midrisam Ihajani Nanuraga. This great saint, he's talking about the names of God, and he says, O my name, your ho- O my Lord, your holy name alone could render all benediction to human society. Your holy name alone. He's talking to God. Oh my Lord, your holy name alone can render all kinds of benedictions to human society. Therefore, you have hundreds and thousands of names because not everybody is looking at God with the same angle of vision. So they, ha- they attribute different names to the Supreme. But the names that are being spoken of in this verse, this sloka, are those names which are his eternal names. Therefore, speaking of his eternal, you have hundreds and now thousands of names in which which you have invested all your transcendental potencies. Again, back to the transcendental nature of the Lord and the distinction between what we're accustomed to in this world and what is the nature of the Lord in his spiritual realm and also of the Lord when he enters this material world. <laughs>
as an avatar descending, coming in. But I'm so unfortunate. Gordivum. I have no attraction for them. They could give me whatever I wanted, but I have no attraction for these transcendental names. This is my misfortune. What can you do for me now? I'm lost. So he's he's praying in a very reverential mood, in a in a, in a repentant way, that if I was really a determined transcendentalist, I would not be able to take your names away from my tongue. I'd want to constantly taste these names. One other aspect that we'll close with, the distinct nature of Bhagavan's name, while imperceptible to the speech and mind, it is self-manifest. That takes some, some real contemplation. That it appears like I could just hear your names. Krishna, Rama, Buddha, Jesus, all these names for, for trans, of transcendence, they, just, they appear to be just here in the world. But the fact of the matter is they're not like other nomenclatures used in the world to distinguish one thing from another. They are of his personal nature and they are self-manifest. They, they fully manifest from that transcendental plane. Any questions? Yes. We were speaking about relationships and uh, when one finds a love of their life and then it's, it's over and this is heartbreaking for us. If the relationship becomes conjugal or love that's free, love that's free of desire or lust, and it becomes a more spiritual relationship. When the material body is over and the eternal soul is left, does this relationship carry on? It can. It can. It can, depending on the depth of the the depth of uh, the relationship. Yeah. Couples can go forward. That's there in the Shastra, in the scriptures. Sages have seen that in people. Uh, sometimes the roles change. The man becomes the woman, the woman becomes the man, but it's certainly possible. Uh, there are even some religious traditions, uh, specifically the Mormon tradition. They, they really have some strong... Um, some strong, strong sense of the maintenance of the family values and relationships uh, to be carried on to into future lives, and there's no reason to think that uh, certainly those kind of desires and that kind of faith built on those desires mm -hmm. uh, would not be fulfilled by the Supreme. Mm -hmm. But it's important for us to understand that. Uh, that's distinct from the, the aspirations 
that are put forth in our tradition for a transcending of, of material life altogether. That doesn't mean that in the spiritual realm there aren't families and there aren't relationships and, and like that. But generally when we speak about the husband and wife going forward, we speak of it in nature of going forward in the, in the cycle of samsara, meaning taking another material birth. And uh, that's, that's a, different, a different thing than what I'm speaking of as far as transcendent ending of material existence altogether. That's that's a different objective. So, does that answer your question? Yes? Correct me if I say this wrong, but what I thought I heard you say was when something becomes spiritual, it loses its material qualities. Did you say qualities? Or it loses material attributes? Well, anyway, so the, I, that's what I thought I heard you say, and I was wondering, like, prashadam, like, it still looks material. I mean, we know it gets transformed, like, we know that out of faith and mm-hmm. Shastra, but what did you mean when you say it loses its. Spiritual is spiritual, material is material. There is a crossing over point, like when you when you engage the Lord's quote quote material energy in His spiritual service. It is it is at that time spiritualized. So it's just like ourselves. We have a material mind. I can use my mind to think about nothing but. Being a, having a gluttonous enjoyment of life, having and exploiting women, having and exploiting money, whatever I may think. So I can use my mind like that. I think all of you would agree if I used my mind on that, it would be a material application of the mind. I can also, in good association like I have here, use my mind to think of spiritual things, to think of the supreme, to look upon everybody that I see with a spiritual vision, not to see faults and not to see a material body, but to see people for who they are, their spirit souls, they're, they're equal to me. In fact, Chanaka Pandit, a great scholar from India, he said, you can, intel- you can tell the intelligence of someone not by some degree that you get from a university. An intelligent person, you can look at his characteristics. His characteristics, if he's really a smart man, if he's really a smart woman, he looks upon another man's wife or husband as, as mother or as father, as it may be. He looks on another man's wealth as garbage in the street to him and he looks upon every other living entity as equal to himself that's intelligence so if we use our mind spiritually like that to think 
intelligent thoughts, to view things spiritually instead of materially, then our mind becomes spiritualized. And as you said, if I offer my food to the Supreme and are thankful that he's feeding me, recognizing that really I didn't make the sunshine and I didn't make the water, nor did I make the earth that's feeding me, nor the seeds. Maybe I added added a little energy, but I didn't make any of the things that become the core ingredients of what's sustaining me. Somebody provided that for me. And that person is, is certainly I need to be indebted to them. That's gratitude. Don't become an ingrate and think, oh, I deserve whatever, you know, uh, won't work. So there's a mentality there. So if I use my mind like that, it spiritualizes my mind. If I take the food in a in that kind of a way, of, of where I'm I'm respectful of the fact that Sarira Vijaja Jitendriya This material body is a lump of ignorance. It's headed to death. But you're so kind that you're sustaining it. Thank you. Thank you so much for your association.